Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to the 36th podcast and our series on the first half of American history. In the 35th podcast, we continued our discussion of the impact of the transportation and industrial revolutions on the United States of America. We looked, sadly, at the negative environmental impact of the Industrial Revolution. We saw the way that there would be massive changes on individual American lives. We looked at the five requirements for industrialization as well. And then we had an exercise, admittedly, perhaps for some, an uncomfortable exercise, where we broke American society into six different class levels based on six predominant determinants, occupation, salary, possessions, leisure time, education, and race and ethnicity. And then we broke those down to see how many and where the percentage of society, the number of Americans that would be considered living in the upper, upper class system within the United States, bookended on the opposite side by the lower, lower. So we looked at those numbers and and shared those with you. We looked at the landed wealth within the United States, the development of the term millionaire for the first time, and then this rise in what we would call the development of the middle class. This is the class that is doing a little bit better than just making ends meet, but they have nowhere near the amount of money as the upper class in society does, but they have a set of skills, a mindset, perhaps an education that makes them sought after and necessary by the entrepreneurial class that keeps them through their paychecks a couple of steps ahead than where they might be without that skill set. In this 36th podcast, we're going to finish off our discussion of the Industrial Revolution by looking at how entrepreneurs will also be tapping other types of thinkers in order to sell their products, especially products they continue to develop and redevelop. Please note, though, that as I hopefully have been able to explain in these prior podcasts on the transportation and industrial revolutions, that truly every fiber of American society was changing. Our amount of free time was changing, what we were doing with that free time, the way the government was becoming more involved in our lives than ever before. Folks, even our houses have physically changed. 
at this time when we left in the industrialized world, as we began to leave the home factories, the home-based businesses by and large, our homes could be designed differently. Therefore, we could take what was once allocated as the largest room in the house, which was for the merchant shop or the craft shop, the retail store, whatever it was we were engaged in, in the pre-industrial society, that area could now be converted for just general living functions, hence the rise of that term, the living room. Now, admittedly, prior to that, depending upon the country that you were that you lived in or the part of the country you lived in, that room would have also been called prior to that the parlor. And the parlor would not be a room that by and large would have been looked on or looked at fondly. The parlor was the largest room in the house, especially in the days in established segments of society throughout the United States, where the part of the house that would have to be used to wake our loved ones after they had died. That's where we get the term the wake from. It truly was to make sure that they wouldn't do exactly that. Yes, we had the modern advances in medicine to a certain extent to be able to be fairly confident that a person had died, but before the modern application of embalming procedures and other types of things called autopsies to confirm an individual how an individual died, much less that they did die, let's hope before an autopsy is performed, although it would not be the first time that a doctor goes to cut in and finds an actual working pulse. Another story for another day, but it is by far the exception to the rule. But the parlors had to be large because you had to have room for the casket, literally, to be, to be used there. It's such a large part of the real estate of the average American home, yet it was only used primarily for that function, as well as for to be used depending upon the religious, uh, religion, religious affiliation within the household, would be used for religious holidays. The typical American household, would they would use that home basically three times. They would use that part of the room three times a year. Easter, whether you're Orthodox or Roman Catholic, it would be used for Easter. Christmas, again, Orthodox or Roman Catholic. Protestant, all of those still have the Easter and the um, Christmas holiday. And then strictly to America, of course, would be the Thanksgiving holiday. That room would be opened up. These, in fact, this particular scenario that I'm describing, some perhaps of my older listeners, maybe you've experienced this yourself, or you have, um, or for your younger listeners, you remember mom and dad or grandma and grandpa telling you about this. This would be the room that would be used to use the term that my mother's cousin said, and he used, he used it very derisively. This would be the room that they used for nice. And that literally was the two words he used, for nice. And it drove him nuts. The largest part of a house, and you use it three times a year for celebratory functions, and then, of course, for the sad functions of letting a body lie in state to make sure that they are not going to wake up. Other than that, you didn't use the room at all. You'd go in there the three times a year and sit on the furniture that for many households was covered in plastic and the dust plumes would, would rise up through the pockets, the lampshades covered in plastic. And you were so deathly afraid of ruining anything, you didn't dare bring in any kind of drinks or uh, food. At least the younger generation certainly did not. And then they would move over to the dining room, bringing the celebration eventually to an end that night. The living room would be cleaned again or the parlor would be cleaned again for the next four nice occasion, 
or in the event of a wake. Uh, in particular, just to bring this home to roost uh, personally is by way of example, my mother grew up in a house that was designed that way in the south side of Chicago. She grew up in a house. I had the opportunity to see this house. I was able to get her to go through her beloved childhood home as a Christmas gift for her. Yes, I still bought her something. Don't think I'm that cheap. But I, uh, I knew she had been talking about some time after she had retired that she would love one more time just to be able to go see her childhood home. But of course, that would never happen. And my sisters and I worked out an opportunity to um, knock on that individual's door that owned the home. And we set up a date when they could make sure the house was uh, worthy of having a guest walk through there. And we were able to get my mom to walk into her home, which when she died in 2019, would truly have turned out to be her last time in that home. But I couldn't help that when we walked in the front door with so many stories that she told me about that typical home in that area of Chicago, that the largest room to the left as you walked in would be the parlor where they did have to put her sister when she was killed by a train in right the days right before Christmas in the late 1940s, where the body there lied in state for a couple of days before she was ultimately buried on Christmas Eve. Such a sad story, but that's what those parlors, that's what those big rooms were used for. So today, again, the, the terminology shifted a little bit to living room, but even that as we head into the 21st century, folks, even that is changing significantly. In some cases, the living room is becoming a much smaller room, almost becoming the same size as a dining room. And even the dining rooms in many houses are being phased out. The home that I'm recording in my home office where I'm recording this podcast from, the house that we live in built in 1994, also shows or reflects these changes. The living room and our house that we lived in in Chicago built in 1957, the largest room, the living room. The house we owned before that on Trumbull Avenue in Evergreen Park, Illinois, the largest room, the living room. The largest room, however, in our house in Northeast Ohio is not the living room, it's the family room. And houses built in the 2010s, segueing out of the dining room entirely and making for a larger eat-in area of the standard American kitchen. So please know again that with the industrialized world, as the industrialization sets in, our every fabric of our society truly is changing as a result of that. Please note too that more products Products that are being able to made faster, cheaper, and more of them, you guessed it, more competitors are also going to be popping up. It was no surprise that entrepreneurs truly would have to think outside of the box in order to lure their customers in and back in on a regular basis in order to get that money out of their pockets and into their own. To the point that we will not invent for the first time, but we will certainly expand on ancient inventions of figuring out how to occupy or preoccupy the human mind to get them to move in a certain direction and take a certain action. And the action, of course, would be to reach into the pockets, whip out that cash or the eventual credit card, and pass that on to the owner, to the entrepreneur, as that person walks out with the product or the service that was completed. I ask you here to listen in as I read to you this excerpt by David Brooks in his book called The Social Animal, is uh, published by Random House in 2011. It is just an absolutely fascinating 
book that this New York Times bestseller author has the opportunity to really explain in such a short amount of words better than I certainly could ever expand on. So I started with what I'm reading now in chapter 11 on page 171, if you'd ever get this book, and I'll repeat it again at the end if you wish to write it down. But he writes and starts chapter 11, and the title of that chapter is called Choice Architecture. And he begins, Sometime back in the Pharaoh's day, a shopkeeper discovered that he could manipulate the unconscious thoughts of his customers simply by manipulating the environment in his store. Now, as I go on, I'm breaking away now from the book, as I go on, tell me how many of these things that Mr. Brooks rattles off you have not been affected by. Oh, sure, go ahead and try to fight it and say you're above that. I did too, but it doesn't work. These people, they know what they're doing. And again, this goes all the way back to the ancient world. So I continue. Merchandisers have been following that pharaoh's lead ever since. For example, shoppers in grocery stores usually confront the fruit and vegetable section first. Grocers know that shoppers who buy the healthy stuff first will feel so uplifted that they will then tend to buy more junk food later on in their trip. Grocers know that the smell of baked goods stimulates shopping, so many bake their own bread from frozen dough on the premises each morning and then pump the bread odor or smell into the store throughout the day. They also know that music sells goods. Researchers in Great Britain found out that when French music was pumped into a store, sales of French wines skyrocketed. When German music was played, German wine sales grew. At the shopping mall, low-volume stores are generally located near the exits. Why? Because people haven't made the transition yet from the outside world to the inner shopping world, so they barely notice those first few establishments. In department stores, the woman's shoe section is generally next to the woman's cosmetic section. While the clerk is off going to the back to find the right size shoe, which they are trained to take longer than necessary, the bored customers are likely to wander over and find out what makeup they might want to try later. Consumers frequently buy products placed on the right side of a display are of higher quality than those on the left. Timothy Wilson and Richard Nisbet put four identical pairs of pantyhose on a table and asked consumers to rate them. The farther to the right a pair was on the table, the higher the rating the woman naturally gave it. The right word most pair was rated highest by 40% of the customers. The one to the next to it, 31%, then 17%, and the left word most one, 12%. All the customers but one, ironically enough, a college, a psychology student, denied that location made any difference in their selection, and none noticed that the products were exactly the same. Getting over to the restaurants, people eat depending on how many people they are dining with. People eating alone eat least. People eating with one other person generally tend to eat 35% more than they would at home. People dining in a party of four 
eat 75% more. And people dining with seven or more eat an astonishing 96% more. So I end that excerpt that I read from his book. And again, it's called The Social Animal by David Brooks. And that's spelling of the last name, B-R-O-O-K-S. If you'd like an opportunity to listen or to understand the way this uh, brilliant analyst thinks, I encourage you to listen to the PBS NewsHour. And you can look up every Friday afternoon or early evening, they have a segment of political analysis. For many, many years, it was uh, Shields and Chagall, and then it was, um, then David Brooks joined, and it was uh, Shields and Brooks for many, many years, and now it's Brooks and Jonathan Capehart who analyze the week's politics uh, news that hit the headlines. But you can kind of get an idea of the man's background and just truly a brilliant work that ex explains how the human mind thinks. And of course, I'm always all about that. So, and again, I, I would love to be able to know if any of my listeners, if I hit any raw nerves with you about your behavior when you go to the grocery store or you're at a restaurant, but clearly he hit some nerves on, because again, he's not just guesstimating this. That's one of the reasons why I, I bring his book into my classes is yes, he's making these facts, but he clearly has the end notes in there and they're the, um, the notes in there about where he obtained that information, what survey was done, and it's all relatively recent to that book's publication date. But it's even true going back to the grocery store, for example, he doesn't discuss this in the book, but if you notice or think about it, what are the two most common grocery items that an individual runs into the grocery store? Assuming it's not a huge shopping list, although the shopping list most likely will have this on there as well, but even if a person needs five or fewer things, what two items generally are bought the most? If you guess that it was milk or a dairy product like milk or skim milk, doesn't matter the type, but milk and bread, you would be right. Now I ask you, if those are the two most commonly bought items, where are they located at your local grocery store you go into? It doesn't matter if it's a small mom and pop shop. It doesn't matter if it's a, a little mart connected to a gas station or a major grocery store. Those individuals, are those owners are smart enough to know because the marketing industry research has proved it, that if those are the two most commonly bought items, then the last thing you're gonna do is put those two items right at the front door, right next to the checkout. No, instead you're gonna come into the bread, which is generally considered a healthier item. So that's gonna be connected to, as David Brooks pointed out, to your fruits and vegetables and those types of items. The milk, is gonna be located most likely at the opposite side, if not opposite corner of that particular grocery store. And then you're gonna to have to traipse back to the front in order to check those items out. The point of all of that, of course, perhaps is obvious. It's somewhere, somewhere along the line, the average shopper going in for the milk and the bread is going to be coming out with more items than just that. Nothing about that is illegal. But again, that is the world of marketing that rises up in the wake of the bringing on of what becomes known as the industrialized world. In terms of this, we bring, bring the, this podcast as well as the Industrial Revolution to a close, I just also want to discuss the impact on the working class. 
clearly they would be able, as voters in America, would be able to have an influence in politics. As a result, politicians were smart enough to know and to listen to the plight of the average American worker in the rise of the industrialized world. Initially, there would be the seeking to establish or regulate the maximum number of hours that an individual could be worked uh, could work in a given day, sun up to sun down. Initially, it would be an established ten-hour workday. It'll eventually go down to nine hours, then eight hours, and then the generally accepted seven and a half hours. And you might say, No, 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 no. Wait a minute, Chris. That can't be because I work from nine to five. Correct. You work from nine to five, eight hours, perhaps. Perhaps you're working nine to five, but it doesn't matter whether it's three to 11, 11 to seven. We are familiar with those eight hour shifts, but corporate America is only paying you for seven and a half. You'll either be paid for two 15 minute breaks or one half hour break, or you'll be paid for your half hour lunch. But the other two required time offs that are to be granted to you, those breaks, those are on your dime. They are not generally uh, in America, corporate America paid for. This will then propagate the rise of the formation of our first labor unions that we'll be discussing in later podcasts in American history. But one other item of note that also comes out of this, which is certainly still with us today in every corner of American society, and that's the push for access to Benjamin Franklin's original idea of the notion of a free education. It's very difficult to force mom and dad to leave the homestead where prior to the industrialized world, everything was done at home. If there was a local school and mom and dad wanted to send Junior or Junette down to be to the school, great, do it. But they could also be homeschooled as well because there was no break in the routine. But if dad is going off to work now, And eventually mom is going off to work now. Who's taking care of the kids at home and who's educating them? So it's no surprise in the corporate American world or the the rise of the industrial American world also is the rise to America's standard education system, which we'll also talk about to much greater length in future podcasts. But that wraps up then our discussion and these past couple of podcasts on the industrial and transportation revolutions and how they affected John and Jane Doe throughout the United States of America. When we returned, we're then going to return to the podcast discussions to other areas of American society by looking at different aspects such as the impact of agriculture We're also going to be looking at the various segments of America now that we've been settled for well over seven decades in a country we can call our own. We're going to take a quick glimpse at life in the East and how it differentiated from the Northwest and Southwest. We're then going to take another look at the plight of Native Americans attempting to still trying to forge on their own in a continent that is being aggressively taken over day in and day out. We will then move from there to return to look at Washington, D.C. and how we are interacting with our relatively new neighbor to the south, Mexico. And need I give you any kind of a foreshadowing here that our initial interaction is certainly not one that'll be worth writing home about because our first interaction is going to be a horrible one. So thank you for listening. 
please go to my website, ceconsola.com, or email me with any questions or comments you might have, especially book recommendations. Hey, I just gave you one today. I think you owe me one now. And if you'd like what we discussed, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.